Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm ready to spike this one into the ground. <laughs> oh. Hi, Andy. Hey. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm drinking some spiked punch over here. No, you're not. Is it, a, is it your, one of your kids' birthdays? It's actually just water. Oh. Sorry. Sorry to Sud- spoil the Suddenly pot. less cool. <laughs> I'm drinking a soda stream. God, oh, I love soda stream so much. I know you do. You and, oh. your, you and your bubbly waters. Oh, bubbly water. I'm so bored with regular water. I get so bored with it. It's just like tasteless and just flat. It's it's flat. Have you ever think about that with your water? It's flat. It's naturally flat. Flat <laughs> is the thing we try to avoid in our beverages. But water just comes that way, and some reason we celebrate it. No, thank you. <laughs> Bubble it up, baby. Bubble it up with the Soda Stream. Unreal, bubbly water. Yeah, I like me some bubbly water. Ah, oh, it's so good. <laughs> I just don't have my special fancy little soda stream machine to bubble my own water. You don't, you honestly, you don't have one? Like, would you, is it something you think you would use if you had one? I don't know. I, I've i never, I've never put much, much thought into Not it. Not nearly good enough, Andy. Not uh, nearly <laughs> good enough. <laughs> well, I'd like you to try it. I, I feel like you should try one and then we'll, then we'll see. We'll make it maybe go into some negotiations. Okay. <laughs> How's your uh, How's your week? Have you seen anything since we last uh, spoken a couple hours ago? Uh, you know, I haven't. <laughs> okay, I haven't. It's been a busy I'd week. To, I'd love to say I have, but uh, uh, I have not. I would love it if you would say that too. But uh, it it is. We are. Uh, uh, yeah. No. It's it's good. Um, we are uh, wrapping up our heist series. Uh, no, they're not. They were second. This not. is the penultimate heist film. That's right. All right. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about. Uh, uh, Denzel, Denzel and Clive and Jody in Inside Man, mm. um, and so we'll be talking about that in a few minutes on the next reel. So uh, thank you so much for joining us and listening. I'm Pete Wright. That's Andy Nelson, and uh, you can find us at thenextreel.com, Facebook.com/slash thenextreel for uh, some great links, and um, uh, iTunes is where you subscribe to the show. If you're an iTunes user, you can also grab the RSS feed off our website. So you can use your podcatcher of choice. I am not an iTunes user. Did I tell you that? I don't. Uh, even, I, I don't even didn't. for podcasts. I don't even. I don't even mess with iTunes. So uh, here we pitch iTunes every single week, and I don't. I don't even do it. I don't even eat, eat my own crackers. But we do like people to go eat the crackers at iTunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can do it and on leave iTunes. Leave us a review and a rating. Well, this is the whole point. I was telling you, this is what I was going to. I use Downcast, oh. and what I'm telling you is for people like me. If you're out there, if you're an Android user, uh, you can you can also subscribe to the show for free. Just grab the uh, grab the RSS feed from our website at uh, thenextreel.com, and you could be like me, or you could be like Andy and use uh, you know whatever. I use Downcast. 
neither one of us uses iTunes. I live, but I, but I do iTunes. go to iTunes when I am reviewing and rating things. <laughs> All right, I'm just trying to to remind people that there's convenience involved. There is. I don't want to fight great about convenience. it. I, I am not arguing that with you. <laughs> I am not arguing that with you. Well played, sir. <laughs> well played. I didn't see that coming. Oh, there it was. There it was. Let's do our let's do our trailers. You first. I'm actually very excited about this movie. I'm very okay. excited about this movie. Uh, I can't believe we uh, I didn't even see this coming. Didn't even know it was a thing. This is uh the Wolf the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> what, what? I think you're right. That yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Martin Scorsese. I can't pull it off for that much longer. I'd love uh, it's for Martin... you to just keep going with that. <laughs> Martin Scorsese's new film starring the one and only uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, as a New York stockbroker who uh, refuses to cooperate in a large securities fraud case involving corruption on where? Guess Wall Street. Uh, and he, this one is another one. He looks good in this movie, DiCaprio. It looks like a, a wild, fun Scorsese ride. <laughs> I can't wait. You know what I'm most excited about uh, in this film? Can you guess the actor that I'm most excited to see in this movie based on the trailer? Yes. Do it. It's it's the uh, Walking Dead guy, Bernthal. No. That's, that was my guess. No, I mean, I guess I'm excited to see him, too, because we have the same haircut. Uh, and I was sad to see him go on The Walking Dead. Spoiler. Uh, no, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, well, you know, he has really had a good couple years. Like, everything that he has been in has been yeah. really yeah. solid. And yeah. I still haven't seen Mud. And I oh. so desperately want to go catch it. You and must I, see Mud. It's I, fantastic. I it's absolutely. And then you know what you should see. Uh, you should do after you see Mud. Are, do you subscribe to the uh, the Meet the Filmmaker podcast? Uh, iTunes, uh, the Apple, the Apple Store. Meet the, po- <laughs> <laughs> the podcast. No, uh, I I have no idea. But I can't wait for you to tell me what it is. <laughs> there is a podcast that is produced by Apple Inc. And it is called Meet the Filmmaker, and you should subscribe to it because every week they they invite it to uh, the Apple stores in New York. They invite these filmmakers to come in and meet with critics who host these conversations. And and uh, the conversation with Matthew McConaughey and uh, what's his name, the the director, writer, director. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they both came in and and joined uh, for a conversation, and it was a great conversation. It was very interesting um, hearing Matthew McConaughey talk about that. What you just said, he's had a great couple of years. I think is so true, and he actually makes a comment about that, like the projects that he's taking on after he took a break to have a family, to have he hatched a family, oh, good uh, and after taking some time off he came back and started doing these like crazy interesting roles like m- really much more interesting roles than before there was mud there what was the other one that where he was the killer well there's uh yeah killer joe killer the joe boy magic boy. mike right. bernie i mean even link of lawyer really kind of took me by surprise i thought that was much better than i had anticipated absolutely absolutely so i'm very interested in this the other one i'm i'm interested in seeing after um after my favorite baseball movie of all time is jonah hill uh, in this film, I think he uh, he looks really uh, interestingly uh, goofy in this movie, and and um, in a very positive uh, uh, way. I'm very <laughs> very excited to see him. He's playing like a uh, analyst, another analyst broker, and and 
it it looks uh looks great yeah this looks I, like a good film it looks like uh you know very energetic scorsese you know he's he's it looks like he's kind of moving away from kind of the uh more uh, just genre type of films and it just has that crazy scorsese energy going through this at least through the trailer it does so i'm very much looking forward to it I think from watching the trailer, this is the movie I wanted out of um, Money Never Sleeps. Mm, yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, that so. was that was a disappointment. Yeah, yeah, that was too bad. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right, your turn. I am so excited to <laughs> talk about my trailer tonight because I I can't stop watching it. It just is going to be the craziest fun movie of. Of 2014, and it is the Lego movie. I never even knew that this was in the works, but the trailer just has me in stitches every time I watch it. It looks like it's so much fun. And I think the thing that draws me to it is the that it's directed by the pair of filmmakers who were behind Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which I think was one of the funniest films that it came out in, back in 2009. <laughs> it was my one of my favorite films of the year because the sense of humor in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs fits so in line with my mentality. And I couldn't stop laughing in that movie. I still think it's just like a practically flawless comedy. I love, love, love that movie. Phil Lord and Chris Miller directed that, and they are back to do the Lego movie in 2014, which already just from the trailer, I think just looks hilarious. I mean, the, the great thing about it is it takes Legos as the characters, real Legos. And because of that, it it allows them to use every character that they've ever had, whether it's superheroes or basketball players or astronauts or mermaids and pirates, you know, like every every possible Lego character you could throw into a movie. And so you've got this little character, Emmett, who's the protagonist of the film, dealing with this wizard character played by Morgan Freeman. And then there's Batman in there who only dresses in black, except sometimes in very dark, dark gray. <laughs> It's just, it just is going to be so much fun, and I really can't wait to watch it. Are you? Uh, do you celebrate the entire uh, Lego canon, the entire Lego I, catalog? Have you seen the other movies and played the video games? I no, I don't. I don't play video games, and I have. Well, don't uh, say it like that. Like it's dirty. No, I, I please. <laughs> oh, judgment. I don't play video games. No, no, no. It's not like that. It's just I don't play video games because I am an addict. I'm a video gameaholic. I remember that about you. And I What was that to... game that you got addicted to in California? That was that uh it was that Onimusha? Was it Onimusha? It was I've never even heard of that game. So there was a game that you it. went you went to the dark side on this game and we just you just didn't come out for a long time. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I've done that with quite a few video games and so hmm. I I no longer play. I am uh well, I guess I'm pushing about uh you know 15 years clean now. <laughs> and <laughs> Well, let me just tell you, I I do play the uh, I play the Lego uh, video games with my, I play them for my kids. Yeah, and you know, well, yeah, they're out of town right now, so I'm just trying to play ahead, so I j at least know what's coming. <laughs> right, I, right. So I finish them twice. I do play uh, them like when we go to friends' houses. Yeah. I end up having to do like the dance, dance revolution things with yeah, them. Yeah, you have to. Oh. You, you end up having to really. I, I do suffer through it. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's hard for you. Uh, I would just like to say <laughs> that Lego, I absolutely, I mean, I know there are purists out there who get very frustrated by, by by me saying this, but I love what Lego is doing with their properties. The, uh, the Lego, uh, particularly the Lego Batman series uh, video games, and the second uh, Lego Batman 2 DC superheroes has all of those characters in it. And it, from what it looks like in the trailer, they're transitioning directly to uh, the movie. So it's a, it, it, you know, these are characters who, where all the voices seem to be uh, the same, if, you know, same actors, if not very, very close. Um, I love Lego Star Wars. Uh, their TV movie, uh, Lego Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Out was, uh, was fantastic. Um, they had, uh, they've done, they have done the, this year, Lego. They did Lego Batman the movie, DC Superheroes Unite, which I have my not seen yet, but my is available for rent on iTunes, and so I think uh, I think the boy and I are going to be watching that very soon. And then the Adventures of Clutch Powers. It seems like they have been really working up to the Lego movie, yeah. and it, it you can you can tell. I mean, it looks very very clever and and quite charming. And I'm I'm right with you. I love what they're doing. They've got a lot of really great humor in it, and uh, it's. Um, it, it's much like sort of the earlier Pixar stuff, you know? I mean, it just feels like there's enough in it for adults that's that's clever. It'll be fun to take your kids to see this movie and entertaining for, for both, I think. I think I got it, but just in case, yeah. you say everything again, I wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Line from the movie yeah. or trailer, yeah. yeah. Can't go wrong. Can't. I cannot wait for that to hit in 2014. I know. Very much going to be a lot of fun we're all children all of us <sighs> deep down inside and kind of on the outside still too <laughs> and mostly on the outside that's right uh okay <sighs> nice that's a good that's a good batch of trailers I'm yeah about that. All right. wide a wide uh breadth of uh <laughs> genre there <laughs> scorsese uh, legos <laughs> all right let's uh let's move into this uh, inside man Let's move inside the man. Now, did you see the extended uh, director's cut preferred edition of this one? <laughs> the super inside edition? It was it was four and a half hours long. Did you get through all of it? That was about how long it took me to watch. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was Spike Lee was actually in it in the, the director's edition. Oh. He had a major role that was totally cut from the theatrical. It really changes the way the film ends. I I'm gonna have to go that. rent that one. <laughs> um, that'll be a tough find. Yeah, it will um, be. The uh, what do you think of this movie on watching it again? You know, uh, this is a movie I've always really liked. I think it's a very clever conceit. I love the idea that uh, Russell Gerwitz, the uh, the screenwriter, came up with, and really, tr- this is you know speaking to our show last week, and you talking about how much you kind of preferred the caper sort of film where you're trying to figure out the heist and what is the puzzle that they're presenting to you and seeing if you can sort it out before you get to the end rather than just a straight-up heist film. This film definitely has that uh, more, and I think it's a really fun twist that they come up with at the end of the film. I really enjoy it. That being said, for some reason, this last go-around, it took me so long to get through the film, and I don't know if I was just really tired and I was just struggling, but... um, I still really find it a great film, but it just it was a lot harder for me to get through. And I don't know if that's because I knew everything that was coming or what. But this is this is one of those movies that, um, y- you know, it, it's that category of of caper film where 
you know, once you know the secret, once you know the gimmick, once you know the title tie-in, uh, you know, once you see all of the little things, it, it, it doesn't have as much staying power. It's very exciting to watch the first time for me. Um, and I, I remember walking out of this movie thinking that was, that was absolutely terrific. But this time, I'm with you. I, I had kind of a hard time, uh, a hard time getting through it. And, and I, I think I've isolated where I had the most trouble with it. I, I really... Well, I don't know. We, do you want we, you want to start getting into details? I risk I risk spoiling it um, early well, on. Well, so yeah, yeah I mean, this is a 2006 movie, Inside Man, direct, directed by Spike Lee. Andy said, written by Russell Ger- Gerwitz. If you haven't seen it yet, you know you've you've had time. But we'll try to we'll try to hold out a little bit before we really spoil it. All right. So Denzel plays the uh, the detective. He's kind of uh, he's a detective on um, administrative uh, punishment. For or under investigation by internal affairs for some other thing that is, you know, not related. Yeah, it's just some random thing that seems to be there because it needs to come into play later. Yeah, it's a, some character. sort of embezzlement. Uh, there's a potential embezzlement issue. Um, right. And so he and his partner, uh, Schwedel, IGO4. Chuatel, yeah. Chuatel, Chuatel. Oh man, I mess that up every time. Just, just here's he. His nickname is Chewy. That's what he. That's what he goes by. So just, just say Chewy, and then say the rest of it. Chuatel, Chuatel, Chewy, Chuatel. Yeah, there you go. I learn something every week. That's right. That's why I'm here. So they're partners, these guys, and uh, they are. uh, There's this bank robbery, and they are assigned to the case. So that's where they fit in. And the bank robber is Clive Owen and his gang of thugs, and they are painters. And they go in as painters, and they uh, and they are robbing the bank. Uh, And the president of the bank is Christopher Plummer. Love Christopher Plummer and everything. Absolutely. And he has a dark history. And so he mm-hmm. hires Jodie Foster to come in and and uh, take control of the scene so that she can uh, she can help him hide his dark history. Yes. And so we have all of these three elements, these three uh, major elements, um, at, at work trying to resolve this issue. Um, and through the whole thing, we really know more than anything else that Clive Owen is smarter than everybody. And he's just so cool. He's really cool. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Clive. No, you really can't. So where is the movie weak for you? There's a there one of those elements for me is is exceedingly weak. You know, I don't know. I don't know where it's weak for me. To me it seems like some of the police work is kind of what bogs down for me. I find the stuff with uh with Christopher Plummer as the bank owner and Jodie Foster as this, you know, elite facilitator. I find that sort of the story side of the story quite interesting. I get bogged down in some of the police procedural stuff, trying to, you know, I, I enjoy the games that they're playing, uh, the Clive Owen playing with the detectives, playing this language, playing this message in a foreign language. They have to translate it, and it was just a big ruse. All of that stuff for me, and then like the riddle that they do and everything, that to me is what kind of felt like it bogged the film down for me. It just, it was like, okay, I just want to get to the story of of getting in there and and solving this crime. 
And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that was it for me. It was just really kind of the, just the police stuff, the procedural. What about for you? Absolutely opposite. Absolutely the opposite. And that <laughs> is what was so disappointing because the police stuff is what I wanted. That's what I was craving. I love the bit about the uh, the Albanian. I love that they worked so hard and picked a construction worker off the street. I love that he wasn't the final answer. They had to call his ex-wife. I love that whole bit. I thought yeah. that was fantastic. I love the, the bugging. I particularly loved um, that they bugged the pizzas and they got bugged back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that but, they were, you know, eavesdropping on each other, uh, you know, and and yet it was the, uh, it was the, you know, Clive Owen who got the upper hand in that case. I I loved all of that. Um, every time it cut to Jodie Foster, it's like they put the air brakes on the movie. She was so terrible in this movie. Terrible, 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 terrible in this movie. Worse than Kevin Costner on his worst day. She was ridiculous <laughs> in this film. This is the worst movie she has ever been in. It's terrible, terrible. Her performance was terrible. <laughs> and she brought Christopher. Wow. She brought Christopher Plummer to a new low. I mean, it was it, it it was he he did. It's like a drowning man doing everything he can to keep his head above water every time he's on screen with her. When he came into the to the mobile command unit uh, and did his thing, that that little sequence shows how amazing of an actor he is. I thought his just the the way he worked on screen when he was just you could tell all of the competing emotions when he just wanted to sit down and be present so that he wasn't so that he could be aware when he was going to be exposed. That's the you know everything else he's on screen with Jodie Foster and she just brings him to just just rot and filth and nastiness. I wow. was I was really like angered at what she did in this movie i I thought it was terrible (laughs) okay okay so stepping back to what i said i agree with you (laughs) jodie foster was a problem in this film i love jodie foster she's just one of my faves we talked about her on panic room before yes Uh, mine too genius there was something and i i don't i don't put her in in the in the in these slimy slums that you're putting her into i didn't find her that appalling i fell in love with her in stealing home in 1988 and that was a crappy movie it really was it really was but i i don't think she was as bad as you're saying but i did have a problem with her and when i watched her this time and again my viewing lasted about four hours because i kept (laughs) i kept having falling asleep and going back and it was a very long time but that's a sign that something's wrong andy i'll bet you fell asleep every time she came on screen (laughs) i know it was it was the police stuff that was what really put me to sleep but jody every time i was on and this is why i think i was awake watching jody foster because every time she was on i'm like what is she doing what is what is this performance that she's giving here I don't fully understand. It's almost like she's doing a pretend performance. Is yes, what it felt like that's what it felt like. There was something very strange about this kind of elite character that she's playing that I, I struggled to buy into. Uh, well, I, I I really like the idea of the character. I think it works really well. But somehow the way she played it, I was struggling to uh, be. I, I couldn't get convinced. Well, and I think that's exactly the point. And I, I would disagree with you again on that. I, I think that Jodie Foster is a... Uh, obviously she is a premier actress, right? I mean, she is supremely talented. And I think this is what happens when you put an actress, even of her caliber, otherwise, you know, immensely talented and put her in a role that is completely misunderstood. I do not get it. I don't get that role. And I don't think she got it either. 
And that's that's what it felt like to me was watching this person try to flesh out a role that doesn't quite exist yet. Like, I, I don't. I didn't see it. I didn't see the secret super facilitator. I didn't get that relationship. I felt like that whole angle of the movie was like, you know, the the movie is driven. The engine of this film is is by the fantastic caper that you really want to see flesh out. So the, the engine is a big old V8 drama engine, right? And it's it is surrounded by a Yugo of this other stupid storyline and it just doesn't it doesn't fit. I I um and see, that's where I disagree with you, because I think that other storyline for me is what I really am attached to when I watch this film. I am so engrossed when it comes down to those elements of the story and figuring that out. Now, that being said, I don't feel like by the time we get to the end, I, I feel like there's some confusion in the resolution of it. I don't fully I'm not fully satisfied by it anymore. I don't think well, as much it, as I it, used to be. OK, well, I, I'm, I'm still being vague here because we haven't really. Spoil. I guess we can spoil it now. Are we just going to spoil it from oh, here forward? Please, like we don't hang our hats on this. Every uh, I know. I, we. I know. We're pretty good at spoiling stuff. Uh, we get to the end of the film. We see Denzel has kind of pieced it all together. He's he's gone into the box. He's gotten the diamond ring. Uh, this that this Nazi war crime ring that uh, Christopher Plummer is keeping, and uh, and now he's like, well, I've got to solve this crime, and so now he's like instead of listening to everyone who's basically telling him, just drop it, don't worry about it, no crime was committed, yada, 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 he's going to go after this ring and he's going to solve this crime. And Jodie Foster, and this is what I don't understand with her character, uh, as much as I like this Nazi side of the story, all of a sudden, because she was always, like Christopher Plummer is like, well, why do you, why, you know, how can you be so good? And she's like, the guy who referred you to me, you know, he's he's the re whatever she says, but something like, you know, the reason that he referred you to me is because I I do what I say I'm going to do. I'm a this great facilitator and I get things done. That's basically what she says. Right. And so here he is trusting his friend and trusting her. He's hiring her to do this job. And she says, I'll do it. I'll I'll protect you and all this stuff. And then we get to the end and it's almost like now she's. She, she says, totally failed. Yeah, she does. She because she's like, don't do it, don't don't put it out there, and all this stuff. And then when she's having dinner with the mayor, and he comes in and he says, "This is the War Crimes Commission. Call them." Blah blah blah. She's just kind of smiling, and he's like, "Oh, she wants closure." And I'm like, "Well, I I, I guess that's where I struggled with that part of the story is because I'm like, she's not a very good worker. She she got all this money from him, and she's totally fine with with screwing him over now. Because that's what. I, so this is the this is the little thought experiment, right? And I know the movie's made. We can't go back and ask them nicely to fix it, but we can play a little thought experiment if you were to take Jodie Foster the fixer completely out of the film right and everything else stays the same and for all those scenes where Christopher Plummer is sweating bullets uh, he's actually sweating bullets with some unnamed red shirt administrator uh, and we just get to see him uh, struggle internally with this do we need Jodie Foster at all yeah, I think the answer true. is no, we don't. She fails at her job. The war crimes thing gets called anyway. Uh, and the guy gets away with the diamonds after hiding in the wall for a week. It, 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 the movie still works. She is a pointless character. I think it's just superfluous uh, you know, drama and to have her name on the poster. And it just, it was dumb. Okay, 
I think you've convinced me. <laughs> but, <laughs> and, but, but, and see, this is this is why I'm defending it because I like that part of the story better than I like the cop part of the story. Like the cop stuff, I just feel Roger Ebert in his review. I think he said it well. He said. Spike Lee's inside man has a detective tell a bank robber, you saw Dog Day Afternoon, you're stalling. The problem is, we've seen Dog Day Afternoon, and Lee is stalling. Here is a thriller that's curiously reluctant to get to the payoff. And that's what I feel about the film. Like, a lot of these bits and pieces of the police procedural, I just feel like, oh, it's just this part, you know, we got to go do this, and we got to do that. It just feels like, come on, let's get to the actual story of this of this. this crime that these guys are committing and stop with this back and forth that's the stuff that drove me nuts there is a big problem with the character of jodie foster i definitely agree but that being said i'm not i I still find that nazi war crimes and the motivation behind the criminals act the most fascinating part of the story and that's what really draws me to it okay uh, you know, I think the challenge that Lee had in this film, in, in, in that regard specifically, is that, uh, you know, this is one of those movies where you can't spend too much time demonstrating what the criminals are doing. Yeah. You know, they give us these little breadcrumbs of what they're doing, but we can't quite piece it together until the end. And, uh, and, and that's a challenge because that means he has to spend more time on the police, you know, the procedural stuff. And... Uh, you know, for me, I did not see that weakness, but I absolutely see your, your point that, you know, if if that police stuff is bogging down for you, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, but really fall in love with the Nazi. You know what I yeah, mean? Right. The Nazi angle. Right. So I, I get that. I absolutely see that. But I still think that side of the film, that sort of the the plumber's uh, kind of dramatic motivation of the film would hold, you know, without this lame duck. Jodie Foster. Yeah, right? I, yeah. I, I think you're right. I, as we talk about it, I, I feel like you're right. If we removed her, I feel it probably would be an even more solid film. Yeah, good. Hey, I feel like I just, I, I hardly ever convince you of anything. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. What a week. <laughs> I'm wrapping this one up high. <laughs> uh, okay, so what else, uh, what else works for the, in this film for you? I I think that the uh, I really do enjoy the casting. Denzel Washington as uh, as Detective Frazier is great in the role. I really enjoy him and Clive Owen paired together. I feel those two play against each other really well. And the the scenes where they actually have the face to face confrontations, I really enjoy watching. Even with Clive Owen masked for the majority of the film. I think he just brings so much power to that role. And you really need somebody who can bring that power to the to the role when they're working opposite Denzel Washington. I think those two just work so well together. I have a great time watching the two of them on screen. Um, and, and this is a film... I Spike Lee is a director who really... I I think I like few of his films. But I enjoy the fact that he's always pushing himself and pushing cinema and trying things with his films, even if I don't like a lot of his films. This is a film that for me was strangely, it it seemed out of character for him. And it really felt like, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it felt like Hollywood was saying, Hey Spike, we want to keep you, keep you making films, but we need you to do something, you know, give us something so that we can keep your other movies going. 
and and so he worked with Brian Grazier. He came in to direct this film. I think that's a that's a really good point. When you when I this was something I did not know that actually Ron Howard was on deck to direct this film right, and right. stepped out to do Cinderella Man, and then Spike Lee got the role. So it's not like a Spike Lee joint per se. Right. And that that I I wonder is, uh, you know, that's an interesting thing. This has, uh, I think, largely nothing in common with she's got to have it uh, or do the right thing. This has nothing in common with anything. (laughs) So I think. But strangely, not to jump ahead to the numbers, but this film is the film that of all of his films has made more money than any other film that's done. Yeah. Right. So I don't know what that says, but. You know, maybe he needs to kind of do what some of these other directors do where they, you know, I do one for them and then I do one for me and do one for them and do one for me and just kind of do that alternating back and forth so that you get that working relationship going. I feel like Spike Lee is always like, I'm going to do one for me and then I'm going to do another one for me and then I'm going to do another one for me and then I'm going to do this one for me. And they just he, he struggles making films that I think are are that great for the most part. Yeah, he's had some, and you know he get, tends to get tied up by you know opening his mouth in public, and he he does tend to to be a little outspoken. Yes, he does. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying he doesn't have some great films. He's got some great films. He does. He, really, I'm just, just going through the list of films, and there are so many of them that I I really have a great affinity for. But none of them I, would I be able to watch in a row and predict Inside Man. I I just would never be able to link that to Spike Lee. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. That's that's probably sad for him. You know, it's it's. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great for him. I think. This film is a great testament to his cinema yeah. uh, power that he knows how to tell a great story. Certainly and given, his flexibility. Yeah, and given the the right people to work with, I think he can make films that will you know make just tons of money. Here's the the I I really love the architecture of this film and particularly one element, the way they um they intercut the real time with the interrogation. Mm-hmm. I find that absolutely elegant uh, in terms of how we how this story plays out because what we what w- there there is this interesting sort of I don't know what do you call the toning it's like it's not it's like like a, a bleach yeah. bypass or kind of a burn uh, of the of the you know of the film right I mean it's kind of yeah do- I, I'm sure there was some in camera yeah. you know adjustments to how they were like overlighting to m- making a much stronger contrast and stuff right. but. Yeah, the the look that he achieved with with all of that uh, interrogation stuff was drastically different and very much set apart from the real real time story of the actual bank robbery. And and that starts pretty early in the film. So you you're watching the film, you're watching the story unfold, you're watching the robbery in progress, and then it cuts. It does this like kind of smash cut into the first interrogation, and we we see, um, you know, Chewie and Denzel. Uh, you know, trying to figure, trying to, you know, talk to people that we've already seen as hostages. We know they're hostages. Why are they being interrogated? And this happens repeatedly throughout the the course of the first and second acts as we uh, realize that, in fact, part of the, the um, you know, the robber's plan was to dress all of the hostages like them so that when they walk out the front door, they can't tell who is a hostage and who is not. And that plan is made even more brilliant by the fact that they hold each other as hostage so that all of the hostages 
see all of the robbers at some point or another with their masks off as, uh, hostages. as hostages. Right. So they all get away. It is it is really uh, elegant. And the way Lee works these two parallel stories or parallel times, or not parallel times, these sequential sequences in parallel, I, I think it it is so compelling to me. That's a that's a piece that I am just riveted every time it comes back to the interrogation. And I love the the di- dynamic that that the the cops have with the hostages. That's uh, it it's not good cop bad cop. It's like good cop kind of schizophrenic cop. You, you know they 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 play. There's such a sense yeah. of frivolity in what they're doing, like a frustrated frivolity that that I think is is uh, unique to this sequence. In in a way where it feels like the cops are playing it that way as if to kind of throw these guys off, trying to just get someone to slip up. Right, right. And, and I really enjoyed that. It, it came across that way. A lot of that was actually uh, improvised by the actors, and they just kind of like throwing stuff back and forth. And I, I think it comes across very naturally, like the bit about the, the guy with his hearing aids and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And I just love how all of that plays out. It just comes across so naturally and and fun, but you can sense that, like you were saying, that frivolity, but that frustrated frivolity with some you know sense of purpose to it. I, I really enjoy all of those and the look of it works really well too it really does and you know that that pairs for me so well it's like a it's if, if you take everything else out of the film but just look at their uh, at their relationship and the way Denzel and Chewie play with each other mm-hmm. you know it starts with them getting the call and there's yeah. that sequence where they're putting on their jackets and they're walking down the hall and they're walking down the street and I love that bit it's it is uh it's like Look, there are genuine man friends going to the big show. You know, I mean, it's just it, it is uh, it's such a great view of these two cops putting their game faces on. Yeah, and I I I love seeing that little bit, like sort of the way they pull back the curtain on that. I who knows? I mean, if that's anything close to what real detectives would be saying to each other, but I I loved the way these guys played it. It it really brought me into their characters. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Who else? You know, I uh, we've been speaking about him already, or about the cinematography already. But uh, Matthew Libatique, I think his uh, his yeah. cinematography has always been strong, and uh, I, I'm always drawn to him. And I love seeing pictures of him because he looks crazy every time you see him with this just crazy, just tuft of black hair that sticks up and sometimes he's got just the craziest goatees he's just he's one of those he's really fun to see pictures of because he just he cracks me up when i see him he's uh, another he, one of those guys though right i mean he sort of reminds me of um he, he's like the antithesis of spike lee yeah uh because boy has he he the projects he takes are are pretty varied yeah, I mean, he started, you know, in the 90s, he started uh, pretty early on some some much smaller, smaller indie sorts of films. And I think what what really, he really started taking off, at least when I first took notice of him, was when he started working with uh, Darren Aronofsky with mm-hmm. Pi. Mm-hmm. And I believe he's done every one of Darren's films though so far, uh, and is including Noah, which I think they're still working on. Uh, to come out in 2014, but yeah, right. he's he has just done such a wide variety of films, and I think everything from those little indie sorts of films to just much bigger Inside Man, Iron Man, 
Iron Man 2, uh, Cowboys and Aliens, you know, he's he's really all over the map and he's just done some really fun, fascinating right. films with his but films. From like Josie and the Pussycats to Everything is Illuminated to the Fountain. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, uh, there, and, and you know, I was, I, I'm glad you brought up the Iron Man films. He didn't do uh, Iron Man 3, but, um, uh, but Iron Man 1 and 2, which, uh, you know, I thought were really terrific. Yeah. Cinematographically. Indeed, indeed. And uh, and then he started, it looks like, I believe he started working with Spike Lee a little before Inside Man. I think it was with uh, with She Hate Me mm-hmm. in 2004 and then Inside Man. And uh, he's gone on to do Miracle of St. Anna. And uh, gosh, I think that might be all that he's done with Spike since then. Um, that was 2008. But, you know, definitely a great cinematographer. He has a great look in this film. I love the the feel of it throughout the film. Uh, I love the camera work. I love the the motion. And th- that's definitely kind of a spike sig- uh, signature. A lot of moving camera, a lot of crane shots. I was going to just say, through there, the- there are so many crane shots over the police and over the crowd, yeah. and they're all right at the same kind of height. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> that's and sort I of love- the spikely height. And I love the up and down crane shots where you're starting like when Jody, when Jody's character goes into the bank and we start way up high overhead looking directly down at her laying on the floor as they frisk her. And then she stands up yes. and comes in and the, the crane comes down all the way to them and everything. And just like all those crane, uh, crane moves, I think, are so smooth, sexy crane moves. God love them. Well, and, uh, that, and that sequence, that's, that may be the most sort of utilitarian purpose of Jody in this film is, is her getting frisked like that with her arms out to the side on the marble uh, kind of parquet floor lit. Uh, from the side in that sort of uh, half dome, uh, it, it is just such a religious experience. You know, the the symbolism is is weighty. <laughs> it is a bit weighty there, uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, you know, a lot of steadicam work throughout yeah. the film. And then the other great thing that I always love seeing in Spike Lee films is is the interesting dolly moves that he has, and not just your. I mean, he'll do regular dolly moves he will do the you know the the hitchcock vertigo shots where you know dolly in zoom out at the same time he'll do a lot of those there's a great shot of christopher Plummer sitting at his desk when they're talking about him where they have that and you just see the room expanding around him which is fantastic but then he also has this really interesting technique that i i feel like he must have developed i'm not sure if anyone else has done it before him i could be wrong but it's the dolly move where the actor is on the dolly with the dolly crazy as the, as the camera is moving and it it just it almost separates them from their world and and the film starts off with that shot when you see Clive Owen sitting there talking directly to the camera he's sitting on the dolly and the dolly moves all the way up to this wall and you see this wall kind of come out of the darkness and all of a sudden be right behind him. It's a great way of putting you into the story. And then one of my favorite shots of the film is after the, I believe it's right after the, uh, the hostage gets shot and Denzel comes running out of the, the police van and it's got that dolly shot of him just as he's standing on the dolly. It's like he's floating in this like mental blur down the street toward the bank. And it's just a magical shot. And I, I, it's one of those techniques that, that Spike Lee uses in film sometimes that uh, I, I just feel is just it, it kind of pulls you out in a way. But there's some strange emotion that 
it it brings to the character in that moment. And I love at that particular moment how it really puts this this haze around Denzel's character as he's trying to sort everything out that's just happened. Absolutely. I, I think that's really strong. And the, I, you know, I love the wave of cops that seem like they're trying to keep up but can't, that sort of fall in behind him mm-hmm. uh, in that particular scene. Yeah. Uh, very strong. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Uh, we talked about it. It was written by Russell uh, Gerwitz. Uh, and I think for me... Um, I'm torn on this. I'm just going to say it, and I'll see if I believe it when I'm finished. Okay. I think Dalton's opening monologue, for me, beats the um, the opening monologue of Strange Days, or the trailer of Strange Days. Wow. Yeah. That's, that is a heavy thing to say. Now, I don't Are know you- if I'm going to... I'll tell you why why there's wiggle room on that. Because, uh, for me, Strange Days ultimately failed horribly to deliver on you know many of the promises of the intensity of his uh, you know of his monologue there. Uh, I think I'm not entirely sure that the promise that Dalton delivers in his opening sequence, right, his opening monologue, is uh, pays off enough. I just know that it pays off better than Strange Days did. Yeah. You know, I I almost wonder if this was like this was uh Gerwitz telling saying something, you know, really starting with a bang but not quite able to deliver through some combination of factors the the level of intensity that is is promised by that speech. But it's great. My name is Dalton Russell. Pay strict attention to what I say because I choose my words carefully and I never repeat myself, you know, in any he goes into his little, his little speech. I find that the whole execution of that, the straight on with his face, the way that dolly shot works, the way the wall comes in behind him, uh, I find that so powerful in this film. It totally sets up what I want out of this particular heist film. I completely agree. And, I'll, and I have one problem with it. You know what that is? What? That he says, and I never repeat myself. And then at the end of the film, he repeats it. It's like he says it all again. It's like you're repeating yourself. You told us you don't repeat yourself. (laughs) Oh, I'm just like, well, why is he repeating it? He's even saying I never repeat myself. He's repeating that. You see what I mean? Actually, I think that is my problem with it. That, that he does, and the number of times he says, I'm going to walk out that front door. Like he's repeated himself not only once, twice, three times, four times he says that. Right. Uh, so he actually does repeat himself. He doesn't make good on his own his that's own intensity. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, so anyway, I, but you know, this was this was uh, Russell's first script, and I'm not sure how it came to. You got to admit, pretty good, pretty good script. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a fantastic script. Oh. I don't know how it came to imagine, but it did. They bought it like like you said earlier for <laughs> Ron Howard to direct. <laughs> okay, I just had a funny thought. Okay. Would you like to would you like me to interrupt you to share it? What I what just jumped in my head? I'm sorry, it's a total interruption. It's That's you're being all serious. You interrupt me. Well, you know, this is this is supposed to be a Ron Howard thing. Brian Grazer produced it. It's an Imagine Entertainment film. And uh for those who are watching Arrested Development this season, uh the Netflix season, you notice that Ron Howard has a significant role in this film and I or in the in that series. And I just can't help but juxtapose Ron Howard is the benevolent narrator for Inside Man in my head. 
<laughs> right? That is pretty funny. That is pretty funny. What Dalton didn't expect <laughs> when he sealed himself inside the wall. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Now, you We're, finish what you're thinking. Everybody was, else, go off, and please, somebody out there laugh at that, because to me, I can't stop. I, <laughs> I, Ron, Ron Howard is my inner monologuist. Wow. Right now. Well, we all need one. Go. Your turn. My, mine is an old Albanian man. <laughs> so I, you don't I, actually I understand what he understand. said. <laughs> yeah, it really is frustrating. It really is. So anyway, back to Russell. Russell. So Russell, this is his first script. I don't know how it got into Imagine's hands, but it did. It's, I think, a great first script. It really is a terrific. fun script, a great read. And um, after, after Ron Howard left the film to go do Cinderella Man, they did find a, they have talked to a few other directors. It was a, it was a script that um, they were. Uh, it was basically financed pending actors and none of these directors that they were talking to were able to bring any actors on. And then Spike came along, talked to Brian Grazier, got Denzel and there you go. They, they went off to make the film. Um, he did have uh, Spike Lee did have Terry George, a friend of his uh, come in and do some uncredited rewrites on the film to actually strengthen some of the Nazi bits. And probably, I, I don't know uh, if Terry is the one to blame for Jodie Foster's character or not, but he is the one who strengthened some of that um, Nazi Arguably. subplot of the story. And Terry George, interestingly, is the one who Spike Lee went to after the success of Inside Man when they started talking about Inside Man 2. Terry George is the one who they went to, to or to who Spike went to, to write the script. Do you know and, anything about why that uh, why Inside Man 2 failed? I mean, uh, luckily it failed. I, I, yeah, I think I, it would not have been good. But. I, I think it's smart that it failed. Um, I, you know, I tried finding some, some stories. All I could find was that it did fail. They had changed the idea a few times. Terry George did have a finished script. And they had been shopping around trying to get the money. And Spike, from what I read, it just it sounded like Spike said, "You know what? This is a business where you need a lot of money to make these things, and unfortunately, we can't get the money to get it made." So that's all I found. Well, that was lucky. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, yeah. You know, it's craziness of sequels. Like I, I, I don't know. It drives me nuts that people feel they have to have a sequel just because something was successful. Right. right. This is this is a perfect single shot. You don't need anything else with it. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, other, I, I don't. I don't have any other. Tid I feel like I already got completely riled up on this film. <laughs> uh, oh my, Jody Foster! I'm spent. Spent. <laughs> <laughs> you burned yourself out on. I that did. One. I did. Uh, Too funny. This was a uh, an interesting film. I felt as far as critically, it generally received positive critical review but uh, there's a lot of people it, it it did seem kind of like the town in that respect where some people felt this was actually a really interesting genre film for spike lee to turn out really uh, it still has some of his problems i always have a problem with some of this the 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 common problems spike lee has i i generally have a problem with the female characters in his films i always find them to be underwritten. The biggest problem I had, aside from now Jodie Foster's character, but was was Denzel Washington's wife in this film. 
I, I mean, just it's like a, a character waste of a, a of an interesting character. It's just this, you know, sexy girl that he calls periodically throughout the film, and you know, it's it ties into this, you know, this struggle, this de- internal debate he's having with getting married. And I do like the little, you know, bit where he now has the ring, you know, the diamond to get the ring at the end. I, I kind of liked that little well, bit. Well, yeah, on that point, though, he, you know, that I, one of the reasons I like that bit is that he is, you know, it shows that even though he, that he was uh, ultimately exonerated from the, you know, from the uh, embezzlement, uh, I think right. we are led to believe he's likely going to keep the diamond. Well, I, I completely believe he's going to keep the diamond, and it's going to end up now oh, uh, yeah. on his and his soon-to-be fiance's finger. Uh, I completely believe that that's kind of the direction that they intended us to take right. with that. Right. But I still think that his girlfriend is just just cliche, yeah. bland, uninteresting, and it bothers me so much that I don't know. I, I guess I typically find this problem in Spike Lee's films that I just find his female characters to be underwritten. I mean, if you look at the women in this film, we've got, uh, you know, uh, Frazier's girlfriend, who's just this kind of forgotten cliche on the side. We've got Jodie Foster, who's interesting. But again, there's obviously some problems with her. And then the other ones, it's just like they're always it really boils down to cup size is kind of what it boils yeah. down to with the other two women in the film. And I, I just find that, uh, you know, something that just comes up in his films that I just always end up feeling like he just can't doesn't know how to handle female characters or something. I, I, yeah, I think that's uh, accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it very much sort of templated, uh, not not terribly sophisticated. Um, uh, it, you know, I uh, some critics said that there was an issue with dealing with, um, you know, Spike Lee kind of uh, I- inserting a bit of a heavy-handed approach toward race and race relations in this film. Did you find it heavy-handed this this whole approach toward race? I, and I didn't race find relations. It. I didn't find it heavy handed. It's definitely something I noticed. And it's one of those things that in a what otherwise would seem to be a Ron Howard genre film. <laughs> right. It does seem like, oh, those are Spike Lee moments. Like those yeah. are the things that he when he came on as director, he inserted the extra conversations that people are having about these different races or just the judgments people come to. Uh, regarding race, like Willem Dafoe's character, and we ha- I don't think we've even mentioned Willem Dafoe's in this movie, but his character, when he hears that Albanian voice over the air, he's like, oh, it's Russian. Oh, if this is the Russians, we're going to, we better, you know, just, he right. instantly jumps to the the place in his head of the dangerous Russian criminals. And, uh, you know, you see that throughout the film, even the Sikh who uh, works at the bank right. when they when he comes out, just the way that people react to him just because he has, a, has uh, the... Um, the, sh- the, the turban, head, turban the, yeah, yeah, the turban. The, the you know, I I think I I actually on reflection, I really liked the fact that um, that they. <laughs> this is going to sound really strange, um, and and maybe not culturally aware. I I liked the fact that the examples of like overt racism that were injected in this film were uh, like not straight up black and white. It, yeah. it, I, I think it. This film, if if anything, uh, takes a caper heist film and injects some like 
more of a multicultural awareness of the fact that there is more of a complex kind of tapestry of of racism that doesn't always look like racism uh and uh you know i i like that i i'm with you i don't i don't think it was heavy-handed but it was obvious yeah. I, I think those two things can can be can exist in the same space i'm you know i'm not sure i didn't find it offensive uh, no, no, no. That yeah. that he was like that he was injecting some political message in the way of that got in the way of a story. I I thought it was. If anything, it may have been obvious to the point of Sesame Street. <laughs> uh, but it was it was I was aware. Well, and you know, it. coming a few years after September 11th, it's yeah. one of those things for for New York and for a very New York filmmaker. It does feel like he's just saying, you know, this is still something we're all. Yeah, dealing thinking with, about yeah. talking about dealing with race now more than ever seems more prevalent because of you know now we're always kind of judging people by how they look at everything. Yeah, and we're it, we're afraid of everybody, and yet the the main criminals in this film had masks on the entire time. Right. Um, yeah, I, I I think I I um, I really uh, I actually I think I appreciated that element in the film. Even, yeah, I yeah, I did too. Yeah. Um. And that's something that I'm not sure Ron Howard would have been able to bring. I don't think so. I think he would have left that bit out. Maybe the Nazi bit would have been in his. I can see him. Yeah, I can see him uh, doing handling that. that bit of the story, but dealing with kind of the just the the day to day, you know, just minor bits of racism that that come out in people's uh, just the way people talk and think. Right. I don't know if that would have uh, if Ron Howard would have uh, nailed that at all. How do you think this uh, stands up for Terrence Blanchard and the score? You know, I like it. I'm never, like, amazingly blown away by Terrence Blanchard's uh, scores, but I do still think it works. It works for the film. So far for our three heist films, I think in every case it's always been very effective scores that work for the film, none of which I am that interested in, in going out and listening to time and time again. Um, yeah, Harry Gregson Williams and David Buckley did the music in the town. I don't think we mentioned that last week. Um, it's effective for the film, but it's not knock your socks off. Same thing with Terrence Blanchard. He does have some really nice themes and he does change it up between the trumpets and the solo piano bits of, uh, some interesting stuff throughout. But, uh, honestly, the music I like the most in this is the Chaya Chaya song that opens the film from the Bollywood film Dilse. And so it's funny that of all the music that I remember the most from this film, it's that. <laughs> that is an earworm if I've ever heard it. Uh, it is really tough to get that one out of your head. It opens and closes the film, uh, and it's it's fantastic. I it, it sets such a wonderfully kind of international presence to the film like the setup just watching the other thing about those opening credits i think are, uh, that that really work is just the the cinematography of the credits as we you know what we see is um this sort of montage of street life uh interject with this interjection of or injection of um building the team as the van is going around and and picking up all of the the um you know the robbers dressed in their paint stuff but the the way that music uh, you know, on top of this montage of the city waking up, uh, I think is is a really great entree into this into this story. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Terrence Blanchard's a funny uh, a funny musician. I think where the where the where the score works really well is uh, are during the sequences when he 
lets himself kind of fall to the roots of the genre and really just nail those trumpets, man. That's where that's like your bailiwick. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's what you do. You are a jazz, you know, a jazz horn player. You should play that horn. And and I, I, when we get the uh, uh, the the more sort of noirish themes um you know particularly toward the climax of the film i think it it really works ultimately it's it's um, i think it's like you said it's utilitarian it's functional but it it really stands out for me in those sequences where he is he he um gets out of the more urban and into the the noir and jazz yeah so yeah i agree see i wasn't done you did good thanks man <laughs> should, we, should we talk numbers let's talk numbers so uh, inside, did well, in, huh? it it did pretty well for itself. This, uh, you know, like I said earlier, this film uh, made more money than any other Spike Mil- uh, Spike Lee film so far. It actually cost more than any other of his films. Uh, it uh, cost forty five million, and it had a Princeton advertising budget of thirty two million, so total seventy seven million, and it made domestically eighty eight and a half million internationally 96 million for a total of about 184.5 million so it did really well for itself uh profit per minute it's a 128 minute film it made uh almost eight hundred forty thousand dollars per finished minute so it's almost in our top 20 but not quite wow believe it or not the film right before it is alien three <laughs> <laughs> which made more money Wait, per is that minute. in is that in the top 20 that is. It's number That's 20. That's number 20? This is 21? In, yeah, yeah. It is number 21. Uh, uh, when Harry Met Sally is number 22. So, Wow. Yeah. That's smart. <laughs> well, you know, it's I, alien. I'm going to start. I'm going to start. The, I'm going to start setting alien. my rate, though, better. Because I, I, I should be like, I what I'm doing, you know. Uh, my next corporate film that is, I'm going to price around that, that mark. Seven seven fifty to eight hundred per finished minute. There you go. I need to readjust my <laughs> rates completely. This is ridiculous. What were you gonna say? Uh, alien something? I'd, I'd, oh, it's an alien film. You know, yeah, aliens. Yeah, people it, like yeah. people like watching those big monsters. Yeah. Um. All right. I oh. yeah, that feels about right. Uh, how how about we uh, flick chart this thing? Yeah. And while you're doing that, we should head over to flickchart.com/slash the next reel, and you can see our. Uh, meteoric uh, rise toward <laughs> our top 100. And uh, uh, we're very, very close. Uh, on we're that. getting there. Join us. You should friend us over at that flick chart or, or just hang out and see the top 20. We don't, or the top 100. We don't. Whatever we, you we want. Whatever do. you want to do. That's right. You know, I, I'm going to say while you're getting there, I'm, I'm ready. I saw Man of Steel again. Oh, <laughs> good for you. I like it. I, I still like it. I just needed you to tell you. But I have another problem with it. Oh, good. Yeah. Because <laughs> I have um, a lot. So. Okay. So this is one I don't think we talked about uh, last week when I when I was seeing it, when we were talking about it. So at the end uh, of the film, when, um, uh, you know, Jonathan Ken is fixing the truck and um, we, uh, you know, we see Superman or we see the young Clark Kent playing with his dog and he has a red cape on and is, is yeah. modeling this superhero behavior after... Which superhero? <laughs> He's he hasn't been invented yet. Who is he pretending to be? That's right. That is uh, that should have John Carter. 
no red cape, my friend. <laughs> Does not exist. But John so that was, was a, pretty super. That, that was that was kind of silly. I thought that was silly. All right. Let's click know. chart. What are we doing? Inside man or cloud atlas? Inside man. I would agree. Inside man or zero dark thirty? Zero dark thirty. Yep. Inside man or the curious case of Benjamin Button. I'm going to go with Benjamin, Benjamin Button. Button. Even though it's a long film. Yeah. I I don't have the problem uh, now with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this strange Jodie Foster discovery that's going to make it harder <laughs> to watch this film now. It's frustrating. Inside Man or Gattaca? Oh, Gattaca. I think I would do it Inside yeah. Man. Really? I think so. I, Gattaca, well, it's funny that I say that because Gattaca is a film that as much as I enjoy, I I don't tend to want to watch it very often. And I feel like it might be the pacing in that one. And Inside Man, of course, now that I've just realized, it, you know, it has its own pacing issues. So I don't know. In, Inside Man has a giant cancer eating it from the inside <laughs> out. Oh, all right. We'll go Gattaca. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for smoking. Speaking of cancer or Inside Man. Thank, you for, Thank you for smoking. Yes. Awesome film. Moon or Inside Man? Moon. Ah, see, I would go with Inside Man. I think it's just because even with his problems, it's a fun film to watch. I okay, I'll give you that. I you know, yeah. Moon All is right. a mood film. It 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 really is. Uh, and there we are, number 46. 46 out of 95. All right. Well, if they ever do that four and a half hour director's cut, we might have to re-rank it. That's right. I can't wait. <laughs> it's got to be more Jodie Foster. <laughs> what are we doing next week? Uh, we're wrapping up our uh, our, our heist series That's next right. week. What are we doing? We're going to finish up with St Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which I just can't wait to talk about. When's the last time you saw it? Uh, a couple months ago. A couple of months? Yeah, when I picked it up on Blu-ray. So. You're wildly more prepared than I am. I haven't seen it in many moons. Any moons. Yeah. Speaking of uh, horrible Native American accents, really not looking forward to Lone Ranger. I am really not looking forward to Lone Ranger. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna see it. I'm, I'm not gonna, looking forward to more to it more than you are. <laughs> I I'm gonna see it, but I am really you know I I struggle with using the any idiom related to train wrecks because it's such. It's because actually about giant train wrecks. Because yeah. constant train and wrecks. horrible casting. Oh man. Yeah. Although Johnny Depp is part Native American. I know. So so there's that. But still. It's like couldn't they cast someone else? There are there are there are actors that are all Native American. That's right. I don't know if you I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> and they're really, really good at being actors. Like actors. they're fantastic. <laughs> oh no, let's get Johnny Depp. Johnny will do it. Oh, Gilbert my. Grave. Gilbert Grave. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right. Hey, uh, this was this was awesome. I'm gonna talk to you again soon. Sorry, I wasn't listening. Can you do it all again? I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>